0: Welcome to Faster Please, the podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukis. Several times a month, I'll feature a lively conversation with a fascinating and provocative guest about how to make the world a better place through scientific discovery, technological innovation, and economic growth. You're also going to want to check out my Faster Please newsletter. You're on Substack throughout the week for fresh essays, Q&As, and stories from around the internet and around the world. When Japan suffered the effects of an earthquake and tsunami in 2011, its Fukushima nuclear power plant melted down, resulting in one of the worst nuclear accidents in history. In response, the Japanese government shifted away from nuclear energy in an effort to save lives. However, subsequent economic research reveals that the unintended consequences of abandoning nuclear energy have been far worse than the accident itself. In this episode of Faster Please, the podcast, I'm joined by Matthew Nidell, an economist in the Department of Health Policy and Management at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. In 2021, Matt co-authored a paper on those unintended consequences called The Unintended Effects from Halting Nuclear Power Production, Evidence from the Fukushima Daiichi Accident. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks a lot for having me. The title of the paper be cautious with the precautionary principle, evidence from the Fukushima nuclear accidents. Let's start with a quick explanation. What is the precautionary principle?
1: What, one thing i should I should clarify first, the the title of the paper ended up changing. and we we do talk about the precautionary principle, but it ended up not being the title in the published version. We got a lot of pushback on the use of precautionary principle in the title. Um, um, that said, I'm happy to talk about it because I think everything in here is is relevant to the precautionary principle.
0: You could teach probably a a whole like intro to econ class from this paper because two things that pop out to me are one, the precautionary principle and also the idea uh, of trade-offs because this past paper is very much about trade-offs. So uh, s- starting with that, in what way do you think those principles are illustrated uh by the uh Fukushima accident.
1: Yeah. I I think what's what's really important here is that I mean this is almost any time we think about nuclear, but especially with, with, you know, when when big accidents happen like like Fukushima, um, that we tend to focus on the one thing that happened and we don't think about the alternatives. That that's the important thing. So we, we think about nuclear as nuclear carries risk. It does carry risk. There are dangers associated with nuclear. Just about anyone should know that who's following this. But it's how do, how do the dangers compare to something else, to, to the alternatives that we can use? And one of the problems is that we tend to think of nuclear just in isolation. Like People just say nuclear is bad, therefore we shouldn't do it. And that's the kind of precautionary principle aspect of things. It says unless we are fully informed about the risks associated with something, that there's kind of no uncertainty associated with the risks with something. We shouldn't do it. And that's just, that's kind of hampering because it, there, there are so many um, opportunities that are out there that carry risk. And if we just say, well, let's not engage in these opportunities because there's a chance of risk, um, it just, we, we end up cutting back on so many things
0: that we might otherwise do. And just so people know, there's a scale of nuclear accident severity. It's like a seven point scale. And so far there've only been two level seven, the worst uh, accidents. One was Chernobyl and the other was Fukushima. So in our experience in the nuclear age, Fukushima was one of the absolute two worst accidents that, that we've had. So if you're looking for an example, this would seem to be a fantastic uh, test case about just how dangerous it is and also just how dangerous sort of the counterfactual is.
1: Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. That they, they are the two most dangerous and the, the third one being 3 Mile Island.
0: That's actually down the list. That's like <laughs> that's like 5. So, we'll start with the actual accident. So, what do we know about uh, the, the 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 fatalities and the damage from the accident itself?
1: Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing I think that people focus on are the the, the radiation deaths, right? Because we have the meltdown. There's, you know, there's radiation that's getting out in the environment that's not contained. And how many people are being exposed to that and dying from cancer as a result? That's, I think, the biggest fear to, to most people. And, you know, we have... So far, we only have estimates of that, right? We don't know that precisely because, you know, people are dying from, from, from cancer, you know, unfortunately all the time. So how do we trace those back to this particular accident is, is, is hard to know precisely. But, but we have ways of, of estimating that. And the, the estimates out there, and, and these are not just estimates of how many radiation deaths we've seen so far, you know, that we estimate that we've seen so far, but also how many we expect to see over the next you know, 10, 20 years because of this accident. And the, the number out there, the kind of leading number out there that at least we reference in the paper is, is 130. That's the number of uh, estimated radiation deaths because of the Fukushima accident.
0: I think that's what, mo- you're right, that's what people would mostly focus on. What was the impact of just evacuating because of the uh, meltdown? Yeah,
1: with the evacuation, interestingly, that's where more deaths were. Um, some of the exact numbers are uh, are, are a little bit kind of kind of fuzzy. What exactly they are, but but estimates put it around you know probably a thousand, uh, you know twelve hundred deaths or so because of uh, the evacuation process. And what's interesting about that is that, like you said, that's that's not the first line of, you know, effects that we're expecting to to see, um, yeah, yeah. and 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 certainly. When it came to to the evacuation, there was there's was a little bit you know there's there's mayhem when this is happening, but kind of maybe a little bit too much mayhem that that led to extra accidents from the
0: evacuation that we shouldn't have seen. and is that because you're moving you're moving sick people from hospitals or there's auto accidents. why Why do so many people die during evacuations?
1: yeah, that's that's a good question um because I think it was it was a little bit mysterious why the numbers were so high. But I think it's the kind of things that you could imagine that you say, you know, we're 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 shuffling people away who who maybe weren't the weren't the most mobile people to begin with, and we're moving them away, and that's creating havoc as a result. Or you know, you have this this mass evacuation, and there are there are accidents along the way, um, and all of that could be contributing to it.
0: Okay, so those are sort of the uh, the the deaths that we can calculate from radiation from the evacuation, but then the Japanese government responded it responded with a change in energy policy and that had consequences what did the Japanese government do and then what did you find about the, the the consequences of their actions?
1: yeah what what the government did in and I'd say it was in in response to a lot of a lot of a lot of protests that were happening at the time at least that was one important contributing factor was they they halted the use of, of nuclear power as a source of energy in in the country in Japan. So they were, until um, Fukushima happened, they were, the country was using about 35 to 40% of their energy was coming from nuclear power. And then after Fukushima, it went to 0%. They weren't using nuclear uh, power for any of their energy. Um, and a couple, a couple of other countries that weren't directly involved took similar paths. Germany started phasing out nuclear power is, is, is one big example as well.
0: Talk about unintended consequences from Germany.
1: Yes. Yes. And, and, and that, that, that leads, you know, a whole, you know, another, another can of worms that opens up with, with,
0: with your, your paper's not even about geopolitics. It's just, you know, we could go into that too. But in, so in Japan, no nuclear, which, which I assume at was the cheap energy source for Japan at the time and the cleanest. It was.
1: Um, And, and, and the important thing is it was, it was a, a cheap, reliable, and clean source of energy. We don't focus so much on the clean aspect of it in this paper, but I think that's important too. What we really focus on was that it was it was a, a, a relatively inexpensive source of energy, right? Um, and you know, there's there's all kinds of questions about you know providing nuclear power. You know, it's very expensive to to build these plants, but once they're up and running, they provide energy at at pretty low costs. So, so we, they had a really reliable source of low cost energy and all of a sudden they said, we're going to get rid of 40% of our country's energy supply. They still got the energy demands that they need to meet. People still need to heat their homes, right? They need to need to cool their homes in the summer. Um, not to mention all of the other basic functions in your home, you know, keeping the, the lights on and the fridge running. Um, so they had to figure out how to meet those energy demands Um and what they did in meeting those energy demands was they started importing fossil fuels um, from, from mainly from mainland China is where they started importing those
0: fuels. I assume that's what coal mostly? Coal,
1: gas. Um, those were the, the, the two main things that were coming in. Um, and when they were coming in, they were now providing the energy, right, to, to fill that kind of gap in demand but they were now more expensive than using nuclear so people's energy bills were going up. Right. And we're talking like, you know, depending on the, the area of Japan we're talking about, but some places we're seeing energy bills going up 30 to 40%. Right. And if you think about, you know, kind of during times of the year when you're using energy, the most the middle of winter, when you're, you know, he- heating your home to try to, you know, keep a, a nice, comfortable environment at home, and now your bill has gone up by 30 to 40 percent, um, a lot of people ended up cutting back on their energy use, right? And this is another, like, economics 101 principle, right? As, as the price of a good goes up, people demand less of it. They're going to consume less of it. So we saw people cutting back on their or their energy use, and they're cutting back on their energy use during the coldest time of the year, and what's what's important about that is that that's when energy use is really important for your health, right? Because one of the things that you know climate-controlled environment is doing is it's protecting you from the elements. It's protecting you from from freezing temperatures that that you know or you know we most people can relate to like doesn't doesn't feel good right On, on a on a regular basis, but also if you have people who you know might be experiencing heart disease, you know, other kind of, you know, more, you know, there are more frail states to begin with that if they're now experiencing colder temperatures for a prolonged period of time, this could be pretty, pretty harmful to their health.
0: And, and what you did is that you looked at a, a, a section of what large cities to try to figure out those health consequences.
1: Yeah. And that, that's what we did after we found the, the, the areas where we saw the energy de- en- the decrease in energy usage, we also asked, did we see increases in mortality in those areas as well? Um, and that's and that's precisely what we found, is that we found that when it was cold out, when we were talking, you know, in the winter, thinking temperatures, you know, hovering around 30, 40 degrees, think, you know, zero degrees Celsius, right around freezing, that when temperatures were, were falling into that range and energy prices were higher, we saw increases in mortality compared to times where we had similar temperatures, but before the increases
0: in energy prices. So you looked at a, uh, the, like about the 20 or so largest cities over sort of the early 2010s from like 2011, 2014, and you found about 1300, you calculate about 1300 additional deaths. Yeah, we calculate because of the higher energy
1: prices, we we estimate there are an extra 1,300 deaths in the
0: cities where we were able to estimate the effects here. I guess one, I assume there'd be more if you looked at the entire country. And two, to what extent do you believe this has been an issue beyond 2014?
1: Yeah, I mean, both of those are reasons that we think the number is even higher than the 1,300. You know, our study only focused on I think it's about 30% of the Japanese population, just because that's where the the data was available to do the analysis. But if we project our estimates onto other areas, we have every reason to think that there are effects there as well. So we think those numbers can be even larger than the 1300. Um, And then also, you know, our analysis ended in 2014. That's just, you know, there's always a a lag and when you you can get data and it takes some time to do the analysis, but those effects persisted beyond, very likely persisted beyond 2014 as well. So we think there's, the number of deaths is certainly greater than 1,300. It's hard to put exactly what the number is on it, but but we'd say, you know, easily it should be
0: several thousand more. I, I don't know if you examined this, but do you know if that potential consequence was part of the, the, the shutdown debate, or was the debate just about, this is too dangerous of a technology. We need to shut it down.
1: Yeah, un- unfortunately, I think the debate is mostly around just the, the risks. I and mean, this is getting back to what we were talking about earlier with the precautionary principle and just focusing on on one aspect and losing sight of the, the whole picture. Um, and, and it was really just saying this is, this is the risk that we, we face from, from using nuclear, so we shouldn't do it instead of thinking these are also the benefits that nuclear brings and we haven't even touched on some of the other benefits that nuclear nuclear brings right now we've just talked about the 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 price benefits right now that that it brings lower energy costs and we talked a little bit about you know the the potential air quality and greenhouse gas impacts as well but that's mostly lost in in a lot of the, the at least in the protests that are against it um that they're really focusing on, on the risks um, and not thinking about the benefits from it.
0: Matt, I don't know how much time you spend on Twitter. I, I, I spend too much. And sometimes I get the impression that there's a certain segment on Twitter who thinks economists are too involved in public policy. But this seems like an absolute perfect example where you actually need somebody talking about economics, about trade-offs. About you know other other potential consequences and counterfactuals.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, obviously, you know, as as an economist, I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna pr- promote what I do as 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 being useful. But you know, it gets back to like I think it was Truman who said, "Give me a one-handed economist," you know, because you know all the economists say on one hand this, but on the other hand that, you know. So, and that's really thinking about the trade-offs here. But it's hard to imagine. Any situation where there isn't a trade-off, where any decision we're making, there's not also an alternative decision that we can make that has impacts as well. Um, so I, I know that is, you know, maybe that is a bit a bit self-serving and that that's what economists do, but it feels like, um, you know, that's... That's how we approach every problem. And we think about not any one thing in isolation, but try to think about the whole problem and and, and everything that's happening in the problem, the costs and the
0: benefits. Uh, Just to stick with Japan for another moment, they have now reversed course. Uh, Japan is now re-embracing nuclear. Uh, To what extent have you followed sort of that that policy uh, reversal? Uh, part of it seems to be about climate change. So they've, they, but I, I, I don't know how much has also has to do with the kind of findings that you have in the paper.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't know the the, the details behind what's driving them to to make that decision. But yes, they're planning on bringing back what is it, seven or nine plants that they're going to bring back online. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with. Russian invasion of, of of Ukraine. I think that's a big thing because if if they're relying right right now, we see gas prices going up everywhere. Whether whether you're directly relying on 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 Russian gas or not, it's it's still kind of world world markets that are determining prices there. And we see energy prices are are, are going up, and we're especially fearing this winter. Right, um, you know the the Russian invasion started at the at the tail end of the of the winter last year, so we you know. We had some time to kind of prepare for, you know, the, the hope was things wouldn't go on as long as they are, but they are going as long as they are. And now we have to think about this winter ahead where, you know, we're going to have to think about higher energy prices for a lot of people. And how are we going to deal with those higher energy prices? Well, one way to deal with those higher energy prices is to increase the supply of energy, and that will hopefully bring down the, the price of energy. Um, so I think that's a big part of bringing uh, the nuclear plants back. I think the same thing's happening in Germany as well that they're you know they're they were slowly decommissioning all of their nuclear plants they hadn't fully phased them out i think it was actually supposed to happen this year 2022 and i think maybe now they're putting the brakes on that and saying we need to keep some of those plants alive especially because Germany in particular is very dependent on russian natural gas
0: and I, I think we may have referred to it earlier that that there was a similar, uh, a somewhat similar uh, study done uh, looking at excess uh, deaths in Germany from switching from uh, nuclear to more coal fired plants, looking at uh, air pollution, dirtier air causes deaths. That is not something you looked at, though I would imagine it would be a factor.
1: Yeah, that's not something we looked at directly, but it's, it is, it's, it's absolutely another factor. And this is one that you know, we just looked at the the price differential between nuclear versus coal or gas, um, but you know, another super important benefit from nuclear is that it's when it's when it's producing the nuclear when it's actually producing the energy for people to use, it's not emitting any any pollutants locally, so it doesn't have an effect on on air quality, and when you the alternative is coal or gas, that's leading to emissions that, that contributes to, to particulate matter, which is, you know, this really small, fine pollutant that gets deep in our lungs, gets into our, our circulatory system and, you know, causes death, uh, you know, causes a significant number of deaths. I, I believe particulate matter is the leading environmental
0: cause of mortality around the globe. Um, do, you, do you have a sense that people overestimate the fatalities from nuclear accidents i i remember i don't know if you watched the chernobyl miniseries on hbo and it would be very easy for someone kind of watching that and maybe occasionally maybe half on their phone to think that hundreds of thousands of people died and i recently watched a, a documentary i think it was on netflix about three mile island and they also tried to give the sense that many many people died even though the evidence seems pretty anecdotal, what they did give. They they didn't bring in a lot of experts and economists talking about deaths. In political decision making, you know, it's easy for politicians to focus on either highly visible costs and highly visible benefits. But it seems like with nuclear. They're also looking at costs that perhaps don't even exist, that there's just the sense that it's just a lot more dangerous than what it
1: is. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, part of it is it's a, it's about salience. Right. When we think about a nuclear meltdown, I mean, it's it's a shot heard around the world. Right. Everyone knows about Fukushima and everybody knows about Chernobyl. And, and even if we had the opportunity to forget about Chernobyl, not that we should forget about Chernobyl, we should still remember and learn from Chernobyl. We still have, you know, reminders about Chernobyl and, and, and a series coming out and telling us how bad it was. And look, if we had a Chernobyl-like incident every five years, we'd be having a different conversation, right? Then then we could say, all right, maybe nuclear should be off the table. Maybe it's not worth it. But we have very different calculations. But we've had one Chernobyl, right? The the, the worst incident we've had. And then the second worst incident we've had is Fukushima, where we have, you know, call it 1,200 or so, so deaths because of that. Um, that's orders of magnitude better, right? And that's only the, the, the that's the second biggest accident that we've had. And if that's you know kind of what things are like going forward, that's much safer. Clearly, much safer than Chernobyl. But I think the interesting thing that I- embedded in the question you're you're asking me is 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 about the salience that we hear about the deaths from these accidents but the deaths from coal and the deaths from gas, you don't hear about them. They're just they're just in the background, you know, every day there are people dying from particulate matter, but we're not saying, oh, it's because of the burning of coal, we now have this person dying from particulate matter. It's just, we know that there are some people that are dying and we can later, you know, statistically attribute it to the burning of fossil fuels. Um, but it's not reaching salience the same way that a nuclear accident is reaching salience. Yeah, I was going to say another thing that I think of and an analogy that that comes to mind is thinking about like flying versus driving All right. right that flying, statistically speaking, flying is so much safer than driving. The amount of airplane related deaths you know in a given year is very small, but the amount of Deaths from car accidents is, is, again, orders of magnitude higher. And car accidents are happening every day. And the only way you really hear about car accidents, other than if it's a really famous person who's involved, is, is your local news. They're not making national news. But when a plane crash happens, it's national news. It's international news. But when's the last big plane crash that happened? I don't know. Right. I couldn't tell you. It, it, it has to have been at least several years away. I mean, I know covid put a lot of pause on a lot of travel, um, but it has to be years away from when that last accident happened. Yet, I think a lot of people are more scared of flying than they are of driving, even though the risks of, of,
0: of death from driving are much higher than the risks of death from flying. Where did the precautionary principle come from? are there philosophers or economists that have been pushing this idea since the 1970s or is this a much older idea that has found new salience um i don't know enough of the history of it going
1: back in time it's definitely it definitely gained prominence in the last 50 years mm-hmm. i think with you know with a lot of the environmental movement that was growing out of the you know in the 60s and 70s the precautionary principle took, a, you know, more kind of formal definitions and became, in some cases, a, 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 an official part of policy. Um, and that said, you know, the definition of it has, has changed over time, right, the precise way that the precautionary principle is defined. Um, before then, I mean, I'm sure it's been used at least unofficially. I mean, you know, some people think of the precautionary principle, and I think this is the this is where the precautionary principle gains traction is you can almost think of it as a better safe than sorry. Right. Right. And, and this is how, how, how it gets pushed is that let's be safe first, rather than learn we made a mistake and be sorry later. And I think that that's like a really, it's probably a good way to think about your daily life as an individual thinking about better safe than sorry when you make decisions but it's not clear that that now suddenly becomes a good tool for making decisions for millions of people, right? It now starts to take a different flavor to it because as an individual, when you're making this better safe than sorry decision, you're thinking about one thing, one step at a time. You know, you're, 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 you're sitting in front of you, you have a cup of water and you say, I don't know what's in this cup of water. I don't know how long it's been sitting there. Maybe it has some bacteria in it because it's been sitting there for too long and I could get sick, right? So then you say, you know what? Better safe than sorry. I'm not going to drink this cup of water and later I'm going to do something else that's going to quench my thirst. So that's fine. That's perfectly reasonable. I, I make decisions like that, you know, for, for myself and for my family. But when you're now sitting there making that decision when you have lots of choices in front of you, it becomes different because then it gets back to like what we talked about before. You have to think about the trade-offs associated with any decision that you make, that if you're not choosing this, you're now choosing something else. And we gotta think about the benefits and risks with all the alternatives that we face. And the precautionary
0: principle just gets us away from thinking about those, those alternatives. If you were to rank the papers I've mentioned in my writings over the past, I don't know, five years, uh, the paper you did with your co-authors, this paper probably ranks pretty high. I, it, oh, to me, you. it just, it, really, it, it embodies these principles. It provides, I think, a very easy way for people to understand some important principles. Uh, and it concerns a, a pretty important topic, energy. How much sort of publicity have you gotten from sort of mainstream media about your paper? What kind of response have you gotten either from environmentalists or economics? I think it is a pretty, a pretty important piece of research.
1: Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for the kind words. Um, I'd say we've, we've gotten some media exposure from this, but not a tremendous amount. Um, you know, certainly, you know, I'm doing this podcast and I, I did another podcast recently and um, it's gotten written up in a, in a couple of places, but I'd say it hasn't really hit kind of mainstream media. And some of that, you know, to to be fair, you know, I don't I don't do much self promotion of, of my work. You you said you you do you spend too much time on Twitter. I I certainly spend probably too little time on Twitter. Um, so more more promotion might have helped with that. So some of that is is uh you know is as
0: a, a result of our, our choices too. It seems like at least it's applied to energy that because of. Because of climate change, and I think more immediately because of this war, uh, because of the Russian invasion, people are thinking a lot about past decisions and about trade-offs. Do you think views about nuclear energy are changing as far as you know the riskiness, and more importantly, the riskiness compared to other decisions, like I don't know, say becoming dependent on a potential uh, enemy for your for for your energy? Yeah, I I do think it's.
1: The tunes changing a, a, a little bit, um, and it's and it's interesting how how you know other factors make you make you change your your viewpoint on this um, because the risk from nuclear hasn't really changed at all, but it's it's the risk from the other thing has changed, right? Um, that that's where um, you know again we have to be thinking about about the alternative options, um, and it, and it's interesting like we talked about Japan and Germany. Now um, changing their tune on, on on nuclear, we also see in the Inflation Reduction Act that was signed recently that now nuclear is, is being promoted in that as well, um, encouraging the development of nuclear power. We see um, Diablo Canyon, the nuclear plant in uh, in California, which they were going to decommission. It now looks like they're they're reversing course on that. Um, so I think there is a there is a change um you know the question always becomes how long does this last for um if there's another nuclear accident um that could quickly change things and i think that's what's hard is that there's there's a lot of uncertainty when it comes to to nuclear and, and that uncertainty is different than the uncertainty when it comes to other energy sources um so if another accident happens it could be that all of a sudden we we change course on nuclear um I hope that doesn't happen because I feel like we're, we, we learn from the mistakes, right? I mean, we know with Chernobyl, there were just a lot of missteps that happened that led to that accident. And I just heard something recently that they actually had a safety inspection the night before the actual meltdown happened, um, which is kind of amazing that that, that that could happen. Now, a lot of the information there is kind of, you know, behind lock and key and with the Russian government. So we don't know a lot of the details um, but we've learned over time how to make it, it safer and safer, right? And and our, our our ability to detect problems is is just greater and greater. Um, so hopefully, what's happening is that we're learning how much how low the risk is from nuclear, right? And what's important is for everyone to, to think of think of it in context, right? In context to the to the alternative, um, and and that is. You know, that, that's where we're at a hard, hard point with, you know, we probably don't want to go too far down this path of, of, of information and, and, and misinformation. You know, what do people know about the risks and, and how big they are? Um, you know, I, I, I don't know that number offhand, what, what people think about with nuclear, but I think, you know, we talked about this, like a lot of people think that the risks are worse than they are, um, and that doesn't help public discourse if people are, are misinformed about the dangers.
0: Matt, thanks for coming on the podcast. Fantastic.
1: Thanks a lot for having me.